The Burroughs of Berea is a conversational podcast. We study the Bible and we talk about it. Not all of us are of the same faith, and one of us doesn't actually have a faith. And that's wonderful. We all love one another, and we're going to continue to talk about these things. The things we believe in and the things we believe about what we read in the Bible. Not all of these are necessarily true. Some of it is opinion and speculation. Thank you for listening and speculating with us. There you go. That was good. Yes. (laughs) You are listening to the Burroughs of Berea. Hey, guys. This is Andy. Today's episode is an interview that Rick Welch did with Dr. Daniel Hummel, author of the book, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. Thank you for listening and enjoy. All right. Well, I have here uh, Daniel G. Hummel, and uh, I heard about him from his book. He released his book, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, which really got my attention, you know, because I was raised in dispensationalism. And so uh, welcome uh, to the Burroughs of Bria. Uh, Daniel Hummel, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. You can you can call me Dan, by the way. Um, call you Dan? Uh, yeah, that's fine. Or Mr. Hummel? <laughs> uh, no, no titles necessary. No t- <laughs> Very good. Well, I just I would I do want to tell people a little bit more. It says in the back of this book uh, on the cover, it says uh, Daniel G. Hummel is a historian of U.S. religion and the author of Covenant Brothers, Evangelicals, Jews, and U.S.-Israeli Relations. He works at Upper House, a Christian study center located on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So that's great. I asked if you would be willing to come on and share your testimony, because obviously if you wrote this book, uh, I'm assuming that you are a believer um, or at least have been affiliated with the church in some fashion in order to write this, I assumed. so yeah. normally, I don't know if you ever listen to our show, but normally when we do a testimony, I ask this one question. To the best of your ability, can you tell me the earliest memory that you have uh, of when you heard the name Jesus Christ? Hmm. Um, it's probably going to be in a church setting um, when I was six, mm-hmm. maybe. Um and it would have been in uh, in Germany because I was a missionary kid. Oh, okay. and my family um, lived in Germany uh, from when I was from my age of three to seven. Um, so we were part of a, a small uh, evangelical mission agency called Greater Europe Mission, and uh, and we're we're in Germany from 1988 to 1993. A very uh, historic little a few years in Germany. That was when the Berlin Wall came down and the uh wow really the two sides reunited so um yeah that's probably where i heard it and i i consider my sort of walk with jesus beginning when i was seven so i had a pretty uh spiritually active age six to seven where i was really learning uh you know taking ownership for the first time um learning about who jesus was learning about what it meant to follow him um and uh and so when I was seven, we were back actually in in California on a furlough year, which is for a lot of missionaries. You, you sort of go out for a few years and you get a year off back in your home country to recuperate, raise more money, all that kind of stuff. So we were in Southern California. And um, I remember uh, being really interested in talking with about Jesus uh, with my parents. And uh, I don't remember what month. I, I never, you know, some, many people have like the day that they 
prayed the prayer. Um, and I don't, I don't have the day. I have the year, and I have a vivid memory of walking down the street that um, my that, that we were in the house that was owned by the church that was sending us out, and and I, I remember sitting in front of the street with my dad and sort of asking to pray with him uh, for the first time. Um, anyway, so that's where I count, you know, sort of following Jesus. But it was within that age six to seven that I really, uh, really started getting interested. And so both of your parents were missionaries, is that correct? Yeah, we were as a family. We were in we were in Germany. Uh, my dad was um, a uh, he he got his uh, this sort of relates to the book. He got his uh, Master's of Divinity at Dallas Theological Seminary. Hmm. So he was uh, over there teaching uh, missionary or sort of um, proto missionaries in German uh, German proto missionaries who were going to go and work in East Germany. Um, or in West Germany, but, but a lot of them in East Germany. And then the wall came down and it was sort of a free-for-all for, for Christians. You didn't ever have to, you didn't have to sort of hide it anymore. You could go over and try to plant churches. So, um, yeah, we were there. My mom was more of the, I was one of four kids. Uh, so she was primary home, uh, home duties, um, mm-hmm. a, a really crucial part of, of the missionary family, uh, roles. But it, my dad was the one who was mostly, sort of doing the teaching and interacting with uh with the Germans uh on sort of a biblical theological level. Wow, that's really cool. I I, I actually took 4 years of German. I learned that language and well, let's say I took 4 years of German in school so I learned it uh quote unquote learned it. But I learned how to just you know just enough to be dangerous. But uh that's amazing. So so let take me from there. So you're 7 years old, you're a believer, you come back I guess to California is that where you guys lived yeah that that was where my parents are both from orange county uh california and that was the church that sent us um it is a very complicated i don't know how much your audience is familiar with sort of conservative evangelical missions but you're part of a mission but you also have to raise money from individual churches and so we had a major church in southern california that was the sending church and uh we ended up staying at a house that they that the church owned for our furlough year so that was in orange county again and then my parents ultimately decided they didn't want to go back onto the field. And so we moved to Colorado Springs, where um, that mission is headquartered. It's still headquartered there, um, just north of Colorado Springs in Monument, Colorado. So I ended up moving to Colorado uh, when I was uh, eight and um, and then had a pretty normal, I don't know if no, what, what normal is, but I, I had a suburban childhood at that point. I went to public school. I uh, We were on a, you know, on a on a street with a cul-de-sac and all the normal things that uh, maybe many kids have. Um, so I ended up spending most of my, the rest of my elementary school and then middle school and high school in Colorado Springs, um, Colorado. Hmm, okay. So Colorado Springs, that focus on the family was from that area, right? Oh yeah. There, and this was in the nineties. So this was, uh, there was a ton of, of evangelical activity in, in the city. It was, we were part of that. That was what our the mission agency that we were a part of moved from Illinois to Colorado just at that time as well. So, focus on the family um, is there. Uh, tons of big churches are are still there. Um, one of the famous ones is New Life Church, which uh, both had an infamous pastor Ted Haggard, and also had a really tragic shooting a few years ago oh, wow. um, at the church. Um, uh, Compassion International is headquartered there. Mm-hmm. Um, the Christian Missionary Alliance was, I believe they moved a couple years ago um, out of Colorado Springs, but it, it was definitely a place, uh, uh, Navigators, the campus ministry is also headquartered right. there. So it's a place where a lot of um, 
evangelicals congregated in the 90s in particular. I think part of that was um, they were fleeing places like California that were uh, getting more progressive uh, um, politically and socially. It was also cheap land. And um, and Colorado's great. I don't know if you've been there, but it is uh, a lovely uh, a lovely state. Lots of 300 days of sunshine a year, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of uh, push and pull factors, I think, that made that an interesting place to be an evangelical kid in the 90s. Sure. I I love Boulder, Colorado. I love that area. It's a, it's yeah. a beautiful area. So you moved to Colorado and uh, you're a believer. And so, you know, take us, take us on the journey. Like, tell us how you, I imagine you, you be, became educated and, you know, uh, just, I'd like to hear your story all the way up. You wrote that, I guess that other book was previous to the rise and fall of dispensationalism. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, what, what brought you to the point of becoming an author and, and, and writing, you know, these books. Yeah, I was always a, a bookish kid, so I was always more, you know, interested in C.S. Lewis and um, Francis Schaeffer and other people. Even when I was, you know, Francis Schaeffer sort of uh, was old school for someone growing up in the two thousands. You know, he would he was twenty years old at that point, but I was interested in that kind of stuff. Um, I really don't think I I really took ownership of my faith in a way where I became um, just, uh, someone who really wanted to better themselves and, and, you know, read the Bible every day, all that kind of stuff until I was in college. I think I, I certainly was a, uh, a pious kid. I didn't, you know, drink or smoke or do any of those kinds of things, but, um, but I, I wasn't really, you know, I think a lot of us have that experience when we grow up um, in a Christian home that you sort of take a lot for granted. And it's not until you're thrown out into the world, um, that you actually have to decide, like, do I want this to be part of, uh, who I am, or is it something I'm going to sort of let, uh, be convenient when, when it's useful. And so, um, uh, yeah, that was, that was college for me was coming through that experience. I went to Colorado state university. So big public university, um, lots of Christians there, you know, contrary to maybe some of the stereotypes, like there's, you know, there's, there's so many students that there are a ton of Christians, even amid the, you know, the big population. Um, I ended up going to college with uh, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife of many, many years, uh, Veronica. And she was actually someone who uh, wasn't a Christian when I met her. And that was a big part of bringing me to a point where I really wanted to go deeper in my faith was um, uh, walking along with her as she was discovering Jesus. And, um, and sort of, it, it sort of, you know, makes it alive for you when you see someone else um, have a realization in their life. So, um, so by the end of college, I, I, you know, a lot of us, I think we also grow up and we just want to do anything, but we, what we grew up in. And so I was pretty dead set on not wanting to be a pastor or a missionary. Um, that was, um, I, I, I love Jesus. I wanted to do something that honored him, but I was like, I, I don't want to be in ministry. Well, jokes on me. I am in a ministry now, but um, that was <laughs> that's how it works. That was a, right? Yeah, that, that was not the intent, at least not for a long time. And so, um, I ended up uh, double majoring in history and philosophy, and that comes from that sort of bookish uh, nature. And also, I just loved um, argument and ideas. And um, I, growing up in Colorado Springs, some of my best friends um, were not Christian. I'm sorry. I don't even want to say that they were one of my best friends was Mormon. I don't want to tell him if he's a Christian or not, but right. um, he was Mormon. And of course there's major differences between my evangelical faith and his Mormon faith. And I remember that was one of the most fun parts of our relationship is we would argue pretty vigorously about pretty arcane theological or historical things. And 
make it really pushed me to want to learn more about why I believed what I believed. And so um so that was the type of stuff I, I brought into to college. And I ended up graduating in 2007. And I didn't really, you know, you you don't really know what you're going to do if you double major in history and philosophy. There's not like a clear pipeline to a company or something sure, like right. that. So I ended up working at Target uh, full time as a, uh, a security guard. And uh, then 2007, 2008 was a, you know, the, the major economic depression. Uh, and so I thought the best thing to do was to go back to grad school because I was good at school. And uh, that sort of protects you for a couple of years because you can just get some funding and and sort of uh, at least tread water, if nothing else. And that was where I, I went into grad school at Colorado State for history. I did not realize exactly what a historian does uh, until being a grad student. I didn't realize that you got to actually wrestle with the primary sources and argue against other historians and all that kind of fun stuff. So um, I, I was really uh, lit up to be to, to, to want to finish my degree and then actually go on to a PhD in sort of that first semester of grad school. And I was still not I was not studying religion per se at that time. I was interested in Middle East history, um, which, of course, has a lot of religion in it. But I was more interested in it for the sort of foreign relations aspect of um, I was, you know, I was what was I? I was 13 when 9-11 happened. Um and and that's part of you know I oh know I was I was fourteen when nine eleven happened and that that's part of the um, formative events of my you know childhood and so I was interested in why the U S was involved in different parts of the world and why those parts of the world um, didn't like the U S and all that kind of stuff so I ended up getting a, a master's degree in that in that field U S Middle East relations and got into UW Madison which is a really um, a good American PhD, American history PhD program. During that time, we went to a, an awesome church in Fort Collins. It was a college-based church. It was started by alumni of CSU, and it was really geared toward uh, shepherding college age and then young, sort of young family age uh, people. So that was the church that my wife got baptized in, and uh, was just a really good um, fusion of university culture and sort of biblical faith. Um, so. Uh, we were looking for that when we came to, to Madison, and we stumbled upon the church that we still go to. It's called Black Hawk Church here in Madison. It's, it's the largest church in the county. And when when we came in 2010, the uh, the teaching pastor, there were a couple teaching pastors, but the main one was a guy named Tim Mackey, who had gotten his PhD at UW. He ended up going on and starting the Bible project. Yeah, I was going to say that's yeah. the Bible project guy. Yeah. Yeah. So So before he was the Bible project guy, he was... Uh, a pastor at Blackhawk Church in Madison, Wisconsin. Before that, he was just a, a mere a PhD student at UW. Um, and so that was some pretty eye-opening teaching we got uh, those first few years we were here. And that that I, I would say that's like the last or the the current phase I'm still in spiritually is that I um, I I was really enlivened by the way Tim and other uh, teachers I've I've followed um, brought sort of the historical background of the bible of the of the texts to bear on the meaning of the texts and how you know they really emphasize the idea that the bible is a story and that we need to understand ourselves as being part of that story um i had heard various versions of those things growing up but i definitely grew up in a in a church culture that was much more about uh you could say propositional truth or sort of establishing what's true and then and then hitting that over and over again. And I guess what I would, you know, I would say is I didn't get the full scope of the story. Maybe that was on me. Maybe it was on the churches I went to, but 
uh, I didn't really connect the dots until coming to Madison. And, and that opened up a whole sort of vista of reading and discussion and things to learn and things to ponder. Um, and I'm, st I'm sort of still in that phase. Um, but I did, I did, you know, come to Madison to get my PhD and, um, there were a variety of things that happened, but I ended up changing advisors, uh, before deciding on a dissertation project. And I ultimately had an advisor who just said, Dan, you, you like the foreign relations stuff. That's clear. It's what you came in to do. Um, but you should also write what you know, and you know, religion, uh, just from your upbringing and your personal uh, experience. So I ended up landing on the topic of Christian Zionism, which combined my interest in the Middle East with my interest in theology and particularly evangelical history. And and I also had done some reading around the the state of the literature, as we call it at that point, other other scholars who've written on this. And I found there, there was sort of a, a miss or a gap that I could fill. And particularly, I could fill it because I was taking modern Hebrew at the time. And I knew if I went to Israel, I could actually do research in Israeli sources uh, from so we often often historians are sort of defined by what sources are they using who are who, what are they actually consulting from the past and so no one had really done an archival uh, history from the Israeli perspective on American Christians so that's what I did I I lived in Israel for a year with my wife and it was a great year it was you know, pretty, pretty amazing to, we lived about five minutes from the old city, which is where the sort of biblical city is. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, a, it was an amazing year. Got to see almost everything we wanted to in that, in the country. Uh, many of the things we got to see like three or four times because we could just go over and over again. But, um, but I, I ended up spending months and months in the Israeli state archives, researching their ministries of religious relations and foreign relations and and how they um, understood American Christians. And it was sort of funny, you know, some of it's funny. They they could not grasp evangelicalism at all. They didn't, they, they were always looking for who's the Pope, like who's the Pope right. equivalent of the evangelicals. <laughs> and it's sort of like jokes on them. Like that's the whole point. <laughs> In some right. ways of the evangelical right. side, there is no Pope. Um, and and there, were, there would often be sort of pretty funny cultural misunderstandings or, or all that kind of stuff. But um, but ultimately, I conclude there was a really good story there. So that was my first book was was called Covenant Brothers, looking at the and it was my dissertation first, but looking at the um, the way that evangelicals and Israeli Jews in particular found each other on this issue of Christian Zionism and then forged together. That's one of the things I try to argue, forged together this massive political movement that now is in the news a lot just in the last month or so, because um, because of the war in Israel and the way that uh, different American politicians are responding to it and speculating on why they're so pro-Israel or whatever. Sure. Um, but there's an interesting history to that. And it it, it was what I, I was able to, to talk about in the first book. So that brought me to um, the, the end of my PhD program. And then I was one of the many, many people who've um, given the academic job market in the humanities a good shot. And I, I was on the, as we say, I was on the market for four years, four cycles, and I was just not finding a job that's, I'm not the only one. I'm, there's very few that actually find permanent, you know, tenure track type jobs. So I was, I felt very fortunate that um, at that point we were back in Madison because I was working at UW in another uh, role. Uh, but we found uh, this place called Upper House that was right across the street from the history department that had started while I was um, uh, away on a postdoctoral fellowship and uh, and is doing this cool work that I'm still doing, which is trying to engage the UW community, both Christians and non-Christians, 
and uh, trying to just bring the best of Christian thought and practice to bear to the campus. So um, that's where I find myself. I've been working there uh, for the last four years or so. And um, and in the meantime, my wife was working at the InterVarsity uh, headquarters, which are here in Madison, believe it or not. So uh, another campus ministry. So uh, she worked there, you know, when we were in Israel, when we moved out of Madison, uh, InterVarsity was a great place for her too. So we both deepened our faith as well through the places we've worked. And we've just been fortunate that we've been able to be at places that have encouraged us to integrate our faith with with our work as well. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And I wanted to go back to what you said about Tim Mackey earlier. Um, I remember before I started this podcast, I had read at the Bible, you know, like I had, uh, you would go to church on Sunday morning and you would read some of the text and then you might read a little bit when you get home. Maybe, I don't know. I'm talking about myself, of course. And then afterwards, you know, that would be about it. So I was sort of like a Sunday reader of the Bible. And then I just, I kept getting confused. I kept having issues, you know, uh, I, I didn't understand, uh, most of what I was reading, you know? And so, and, and I was using, um, I was from a church that only used the King James version of the Bible. And when I would read that book, um, I would just, I would struggle with the actual English language. I know that sounds silly, but it's true. I did. I struggled with it. And so I couldn't, I wasn't picking up very much. And so one day I just determined that I was going to learn more. And I remember seeing uh, one of Tim Mackey's little animations, you know, that he had made. And I was like, how is it that this guy knows so much? You know, it was just amazing. I thought he did an amazing job. And then um, when we started this podcast, we decided, look, we're going to try to read this. Uh, we're going to use several versions of the Bible. We're going to read as much as we can. And boy, oh boy, we didn't know what we were walking into. We had no idea. And then even getting into uh, the you know ancient culture and uh, near Near Eastern cultures, the you know the surrounding tribes that were with them, and and how that affected them, and I just it was such a, a wild ride to this point, just how much we've actually learned just by reading the Bible. Yeah. But what, what intrigued me, and if it's okay, I'd like to get into this rise and fall of dispensationalism, this book that you wrote, um, because I was raised uh, fully, you know, dispensational and uh, in a Baptist church. And I had, I started to get exhausted by it. Um, because of the ever changing, um, especially when it came to prophecy, I really struggled with it. And, but the more and more I read, the harder and harder it was for me to see all of that doctrine. And I know, I know that there there are plenty of believers um, that hold completely to that system, and I love them and know them, and that you know I get it, like I see. But for me, um, so what brought you to write? this particular book? Well, I, I grew up in a family that I mentioned my dad went to Dallas Seminary that just assumed dispensationalism. Uh, we didn't even, I don't think I knew the word in, in that sense, but assumed the, the interpretive lens of dispensationalism on the Bible. And, uh, you know, another thing, I, I didn't even mention this, when I was in Colorado Springs, the church I went to um, for mo for many years, not it wasn't the only church we went to, but we went there a long time. It was called Woodman Valley Chapel, large uh, non denominational church. It's all, it was also the church of Jerry Jenkins, the oh. uh, co author of the Left Behind novels. Um, I only knew that. I mean, it was a huge church, so I, it's not like we hung out with Jerry or something like that. Mm -hmm. But um, at, at various points, this was in the nineties. 
so this was as the books were coming out, we sort of recognize him because he was this major figure in our church. But um, I, that's all to say, I, I consume those books um, like both like literature and sort of like teaching, you know, like th- yeah. these, this is a really cool uh imaginative version of what's going to really happen. So I grew up in that and I ended up drifting away from it in college. I didn't have some sharp rejection phase. It just didn't, it just fell away. And I picked up something that wasn't nearly as defined and I can be more definitive now, but um, so I, I knew that that was a very significant tradition within my own family. And as I was reading around, when you do a PhD, you end up reading a ton of books, not all of them on things you expect to read on. And so I ended up reading a lot on fundamentalism and evangelicalism in the 20th century, which might make sense given my interests. But um, I came to decide that there was really not a lot on dispensationalism as such. So it's this pretty distinctive theology, as both you and I know, that does not encompass all evangelicals or fundamentalists. Like it's, it's a particular tradition within that uh, subculture. And yet I was reading books that were basically conflating them or or assuming that all dispensation or all fundamentalists were dispensationalist, or I don't know if they said it in that way, but it just sort of like the way they they were very loose with with defining these things. And so yeah, I had assumed then, I assumed everyone within yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did I too until going to college. I, I really I mean I had a lot of I never had like a crisis of faith, but I had a lot of things to work through, including literalistic readings of both the beginning and the end of the Bible, you know, Genesis one through three and revelation and, uh, and trying to understand like, Oh wait, I come out of a tradition that that's not, or that, that that's assumed. And then you just get one circle bigger, even the evangelical circle big. And you realize, Oh, there's a variety of views on these things. And mine is only one of them. And what do I do about that? Um, so I ended up, I'm a, as I mentioned, I'm bookish. So I, I ended up going to read about that and, and that helped me process it, but I'm no others. Um, you know, have different ways of of reacting to it. But um, I, so I, I mean, this is sort of an intellectual explanation. There's a personal explanation, which is I grew up in it. I'm interested in it. A lot of historians, they justify what they read because they want to navel gaze on their own life and try to explain it, particularly historians of evangelicalism. It seems like most right. of them are working through either pro or, or anti views on evangelicalism. But then there's a, there's a more intellectual or, or academic reason, which is that um, I I was really unsatisfied with the coverage of dispensationalism in the historical uh, literature, and particularly there had never been there there was not a survey of just what was dispensationalism, who who taught it, where how did it develop um, since the 1960s. Um, you really have to go back. There, of course, there's tons of stuff since then on fundamentalism, apocalypticism, evangelicalism, all these other things where where dispensationalism is invoked. But I, th- I felt it was not getting the the tension it deserved as the focus of study. So that was my pitch to Erdman's. That's the publisher of the book. I said, you know, there's millions of people who grew up in this system that, des- you know, I don't know if they deserve, but I said, I can give them a, a history of where it came from and what its development has been. And particularly the last 50 years, there's, there's almost nothing written on the the effect of how Lindsay and his books in the 70s and then the Left Behind novels and then also the academic story, and that, that was the other side of the story, was what, how has dispensationalism fared within evangelical seminaries? And so that's where the the title comes from, is, is I have a sort of declensionist narrative, a rise and fall narrative for both of those, mm-hmm. sort of the popular church level, cultural level, and the academic level. And um, and that, uh, that seemed to me to be a, a, a wide open area of the literature that just deserved particularly because we all talk about dispensationalism every time a war in israel pops up 
um, you know, we deserve a little more clarity on what this tradition is. Absolutely. And uh, see, the re- when I when I read that title, like it just jumped out at me, you know, and I was like, fall, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and that's uh, and I know, you know, I have several friends that saw the title of the book. And they're like, what do you mean fall? What do you mean? What do you mean? And um, so I, I'm let's talk about dispensationalism. Since since you've written this book, you know you've done a lot of research. So I'd like my audience to be able to hear it from Dr. Hummel. I assume you finished your PhD. So Dr. Hummel, you, you don't want any titles, I understand. So Dan, <laughs> um, so where does dispensationalism begin? Let's start there. Yeah, and this is one thing I've learned um, after the books come out. I, I try to be a little more precise about how I say this. So dispensationalism, the system of theology that uh has a lot of interlocking parts that, that we can get to that emerges in the 19th century and particularly out of the um work of the ex- exclusive brethren or the plymouth brethren dissenter movement from britain um now there are of course and this is where the nuance part comes in this guy who started all this john nelson darby he was the founder of the plymouth brethren he did not you know concoct from thin air all of his teachings he is someone who you know grew up a uh, Anglican and learned a lot from that tradition um and was also reading around uh, other traditions and so what what I don't want to get across is to say that everything that dispensationalists you know hold to today is only 200 years old for one thing a lot of what dispensationalists believe is not much different from what other evangelical Christians believe. If you talk about the Trinity or the nature of God, all that kind of stuff, right. there's not much difference. That's a point I make in the book. And that's one reason why something like the Schofield Bible, which comes out in the early 20th century, um, can have such wide popularity is because it's not, in some ways, it's not that radical. It, it, there's there's parts of it that are new, but a lot of what Schofield wrote in there would be really run-of-the-mill evangelical theology. Um, and and so, so anyway, that's part of the, the nuance is to say, what Darby um, starts teaching, which becomes dispensationalism, is not new on its own. What's new to me, and I think what makes it an ism, is that he's combining a lot of different teachings together and making them depend on each other and interlock with each other mm-hmm. into a new system. And that system largely has, um, uh, we, we could say it has three big parts. I mean, it's a very complicated tradition, uh, but but one of them is uh, a basic insight into who the church is. And this comes out of Darby's own experience. He was uh, a cleric in the Church of Ireland and got really disenfranchised with that church and with the whole Anglican church. And ended up basically deciding that all state churches were apostate and they were too beholden to state interests. And so he became a radical dissenter and developed an ecclesiology, you could say, of a radically spiritual church that was entirely heavenly minded. And this developed into a, uh, at least for him, a, a type of dualism where he, he interpreted everything as sort of heaven and earth as sort of radically opposed um, to each other. And he ended up basically deciding that there are two chosen peoples of God. There's Israel, which is God's chosen people for earth and the church, which is ultimately destined to heaven. And so this is a really distinctive part of dispensationalism is this understanding that the church has a very distinct destiny and it is different from Israel's destiny. For most Christians, 
including Catholics and Orthodox Christians and others, there's a there's more continuity and there's sort of a single people of God. Now it changes over time, but th- there's sort of one group that travels through history. For dispensationalists, there's two. And at, at various times they've been um charged with meaning, you know, with with sort of that means that there's two ways to go to heaven and all that kind of stuff. They've rebutted those charges well enough over the years to 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 say that's not exactly what they're getting at, but they definitely think there's a destiny for Israel and destiny for the church. And, and this comes out of originally Darby's insights. And there's a second part of, of dispensations, which is the eschatology, which is the thing that most of us know about. It's the thing that gets uh, a lot of, it's very dramatic and very visual. And this is the idea that, that there will be an any moment rapture at some point that will end or or start the end of this dispensation. So the term dispensationalism comes from dividing up the Bible into different eras or economies of God. And each one has a distinct way God is acting with humanity. And so we are, we are in the grace dispensation or the church age, depending on uh, who you talk to. And the rapture will sort of signal the end of that. It will be taking the church out of the picture because the church, all Christians will go up to heaven. And then that'll kick off a, a, a series of events that will last, you know, seven years, the tribulation, the great tribulation. Um, there will be a lot of dramatic things. And this is the way they develop these things is by looking at prophecy in Daniel and revelation and other places and doing a more, um, what we call a literalistic reading. It's not really literalistic because they're trying to correlate, uh, you know, the famous one is like, um, uh, locusts are going to be a ha- Apache helicopters or something like that, you know. So it's it's not literal, like it's not. Li- well, it depends on who you ask, but for some, it's not actual locusts. It's like locusts stand in for something, uh, something else. But like for um, else, yeah, yeah. So so this is part of their um, eschatology, and this is this is what most people when most people talk about dispensations, they think of the rapture teaching, and then they think of sort of the mark of the beast, the antichrist being an actual you know an individual person that's going to take over the world and impose uh, horrible regulations on everybody. And then ultimately the battle of Armageddon where Jesus will come back, uh, fight the forces of Satan at Tel Megiddo in Israel today. There will be blood up to the horse's bridle, you know, uh, type language. And then that will usher in the kingdom, uh, the millennial kingdom. And this is where dispensationalists are premillennialists. So they, they think Jesus is coming to establish the kingdom. Uh, so he's coming before uh, the kingdom. And um, and so this is the, the second distinctive part. And this comes out of the third part of dispensationalism. And that's its hermeneutics or the way that dispensationalists approach the Bible. And they're very, uh, you know, they're very committed to biblical authority, biblical inerrancy. And so it's not about, you know, dropping parts of the Bible that don't fit your system. It's about finding the interpretive method that fits everything in in a way that satisfies um, the, the prior commitments and, and those commitments being, um, for Darby, it was this heaven and earth, um, dualism. Um, but what's interesting to me about the hermeneutics or the, the literalism, um, I don't always like the word literalism because I think it, it conveys sort of too simplistic of what's happening. Often they will talk about a plain reading, which is the idea that you don't try to impose a bunch of symbolic and other, uh, meaning on, on the language of the Bible. So maybe plain is, is a better um is a better term but this becomes a, a really distinctive mark and in the in the in darby's era darby himself was not a literalist in that way he read prophecy that way and so he was looking for a futuristic visible fulfillment of prophecy as like a journalist would like that you could observe it being fulfilled in space time 
Um, but he was not someone who had a plain reading of scripture. Far from it. He was he had typologies all through it. He had metaphors and um types and anti-types and all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't really till the 20th century and the the emergence of the fundamentalist movement and this new era of thinking about biblical authority and inerrancy and plain reading as sort of all being part of the same uh part of the same coin or two sides of the same coin that you get what is now often associated with dispensationalists which is they are the ones who do the most plain literal reading of of the text and that becomes a hallmark of dispensationalism uh in the 1940s 1950s and is is definitely one of the things that people debate about today is, is sort of the dispensationalist hermeneutics so if you think about ecclesiology eschatology and hermeneutics dispensationalists have a very distinct way of of approaching all three of those and i think the the important thing is that they um as they've systematized their theology over the generations um these things hang together now so you can't it's like a jenga you know piece now like you can't pull out the hermeneutics and leave the other two you can and, and that has happened on the popular level but for the people who really you know are invested in the system um these things all hang together and make what we call sort of modern dispensational theology mm -hmm. And so, uh, thank you for that, by the way. And so now we understand the timing and its rise and it's, you know, the the threefold system, the way that you described it, but you say fall of in this book. So can you, can you maybe take us down that path a little bit? So what did you see? Because I'm assuming you're looking at this as like a historian, right? So you're looking back from, from that point, I guess the forties and the fifties up to the present. So what's happened? Yeah. Yeah. And one thing to be clear is when I'm not making a truth claim about or a truth judgment about dispensationalism. So because it's fallen doesn't mean it's wrong. And because it rose earlier doesn't mean it's right. Um, that is a, you know, that that's usually not where historians go with this stuff. Uh, that's more for the theologians to decide what is the right theology. I, I'm more trying to observe what what has happened. Um, so I mean, yeah, to talk about the yeah, fall, I, I mean, completely on that. I'm yeah, I don't, I don't want to say uh, in that regard, like the rise and fall, like it was a thing and now it's not a thing. It, it yeah. is very much a thing, but it, it could be through popularity or whatever it might be. Yeah. I agree with you on that. So thanks for saying that. Yeah, um, and, and maybe just before getting to the fall, one thing is to say, how, you know, fallen from what? Right, that might be the question. Like, from it's all relative in some sense. So my argument is that by you know the 1920s, so by the time that we get to the fundamentalist movement, that dispensations were so successful that mo many of the institutions that we even think of when we think of evangelicalism, things like the Bible Institutes, which are now many of the Christian colleges, mm -hmm. like the missions agencies like the bible conference movement which used to be a bigger thing than it is now but it's still a thing um these were largely built and and for for a while dominated by dispensationalists and and so there was a time and this is where like the the period right after the fundamentalist movement uh the fundamentalist controversy so the 30s 40s 50s where um dispensationalists were, were sort of the cutting edge of evangelical thinking fundamentalist thinking they were building institutions they built dallas seminary grace theological seminary talbot seminary were the three big ones Hunt, or hundreds uh dozens of bible institutes were dispensationalists just by default um you know the one that uh my family's been connected with is biola bible institute of los angeles um that was founded by by 
died in the wool dispensationalists, people like Ruben Tory, uh, who who just basically assumed a lot of dispensationalist categories. He was a follower of or sort of uh, a worker with Dwight Moody, who was the biggest revivalist of the 19th century. And Moody was a he wasn't a theologian, but he basically assumed a lot of dispensationalist teachings as well. So by the 1950s, um, there was a there was a big question, I guess you could say, about what is the future of evangelical theology? And you could make a strong argument that the future was dispensationalist. They had really smart people at really well-funded seminaries, and they were producing tons of pastors and missionaries. And and I even cite in the book, you know, there's a 1957 article in Biblioteca Sacra, which is the oldest uh, theological journal in the country. It's hosted at Dallas Seminary. And, it, and the article was written by Charles Ryrie, who is sort of one of the deans of dispensationalist theology. And he basically, this was 1957, and he was basically looking around saying, um, you know, we are, everyone has to deal with us. Uh, that, that's that's the, the paraphrase of the article. Like every, all the, to, all the hot topics in evangelical theology, dispensationalists are involved in those topics and, and everyone has to consult us if they're not already dispensationalists. So I find it remarkable that you go from that in 1957 to something that in the last few decades, it's been really clear that many of the seminaries that used to teach dispensationalism don't. Many of the students that come out of a Bible institute or now a college or university that started as dispensationalist wouldn't even know the word, let alone believe in any of the tenets of it. Um, and in the broader sort of academic theological conversation, dispensationalists are definitely on the margins today. Mm -hmm. And there's been a, a, a sort of series of different schools that have tried to chip away at the dominance that at one point dispensationalism had. I start with even the neo-evangelicals, the people that emerged in the 1940s and 50s around Fuller Seminary and people like George Eldon Ladd, who made his early career critiquing dispensationalism and then actually inspired a lot more people after that um, to, uh, you know, the rise of a much more uh, uh, Calvinistic or reformed uh, uh, sort of center of a lot of evangelical theology that you see in the, the new Calvinists and um, and all those people to the way that Pentecostals, uh, who at one point earlier in their history, many of them assumed dispensationalism as at least their eschatology and, and other parts too. Um, that's been a there's been a massive sea change in the last I'd say 30 years in Pentecostal theology where there've been a lot of Pentecostals like trying to weed out the dispensationalism in their theology as well. So um, on the academic level, I think it's a pretty clear story. Now I've had pushback since the books come out, particularly from people at Dallas. Um, seminary who insists that, you know, and of course they are alive and well, and they're, they, they've got a big uh, class. Um, now, one thing I do in my book is there is a revision to dispensationalism that emerged in the late eighties called progressive dispensationalism. Mm -hmm. My read is that that is very far from classic dispensationalism. In fact, it looks a lot more like the opponents of dispensationalism than it does dispensationalism. Um, but if you talk to someone at Dallas, they, they don't see it that way. Um, and then the other thing I've been, I, I just want to make sure I, I channel my critics here. So besides Dallas, the other really big school that still holds to dispensationalism is the Divinity School at Liberty University. Um, Liberty was founded by Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell was a dispensationalist. Um, and so, and so that is another big school. It's really hard for me to understand exactly how big it is because they like include all their online students as students. And I, I just don't even know what that means exactly to, um, you know, absorb dispensationalism over Zoom uh, classes or something like that. But, um, but beyond those two schools, the the rest of the of the 
schools that would still teach dispensations today tend to be on the margins of evangelical um, theological life. Whereas, you know, schools like Fuller, um, like Gordon Conwell, like Southern Seminary um, have moved on to various different things. So on the academic side, that that's the story. On the popular side, I talk about the fall less as a decline in popularity and more as a maybe decline in quality. And this is where I'm being a little uh, editorial in my book. But I really see, I mean, obviously, it's hard to ignore that dispensationalism is very popular in terms of consumer products like books and television shows and televangelists and others. Um, they dominate in some ways. And I, I sort of trace that story about how dispensationalism becomes such a viral consumer product. And I think it's also a little less today, but for a time, it had a very strong effect in politics as well. Many of the leaders of what we call the Christian right were dispensationalists, people like Jerry Falwell and Tim LaHaye and Pat Robertson. He was heterodox, but he had some strong dispensationalist leanings as well. Um, and even people today like uh, John Hagee, who's very involved in the Christian Zionist um, uh, movement, uh, he you know he'll he'll pull out his prophecy charts uh, pretty regularly to to explain what's going on as well. Um, so that so there's there's a sort of legacy there as well. I think for both the consumer and the political spheres, um, I've seen a my interpretation is there's been a, a strong degradation of the coherency of the whole system, and largely what what prevails in those areas is the eschatology mixed with either in the consumer sort of a a very um, uh, a very uh, dramatic or uh, hyperbolized version of of eschatology, and then in the politics, it's wedded with a certain type of you know skepticism of government, skepticism of um, centralized power, stuff like that. That I don't think either of those really. Uh, I just find them as as a decline in quality. It it, it, it becomes memeified and commoditized and exploited by many people who aren't even um, you know dispensationalists themselves, uh, maybe not even um, Christian. Right. And yet it's it's one of the languages that so many um, American Christians and and even Americans outside of the Christian sphere understand to be uh, understand to be Christian. Sure. And in your research, you know, did you did you come to the conclusion that dispensationalism is more of an American system than it is, you know, obviously it started in Great Britain, but uh, it doesn't seem like it stayed there. It seems like it took off like wildfire here and remained here for a long time. But um, would you say that that was true, that it's mainly an American obsession? Yeah, the, its legacy is largely American. Now that one qualifier is that dispensationalists have been deeply committed to missions work. And so when sure. when they've sent missionaries, mo most of the time those missionaries are, you know, teaching dispensationalist um doctrines and that still happens today there are plenty of dispensationalist missionaries out there an interesting phenomenon is that often that theology does not persist after two or three generations uh of whatever country they're in and um, latin america is a perfect example of this but um uh but yeah there are there are some distinctive uh teachings and then uh distinctive sociological factors that I get into in the book. Some of it's around history, some of it's around um, sort of regions. I mean, dispensationalism until the 20th century was largely a Midwest, uh, what I call the Great Lakes Basin um, phenomenon. It, it, it was it was headquartered, and this was partly where the Brethren um, migrated to from- I believe, wasn't it Great James Britain. Brooks? James Brooks um, and, of course, Schofield 
uh, they were out in the Midwest. I know that's where, you know, a lot of that began. And, um, Dwight Moody as well. Dwight Moody. That's right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, So, so, you know, it's often today. Um, and, and of course there are plenty of Southerners, Southern Baptists and others who are, um, dispensationalists, but that is not where that's not the, the home region, even though often that's the stereotype, but, um, there's a very interesting history to why Dallas seminary goes to Dallas and not somewhere else. And that has to do with, um, Lewis Berry Schaefer, the founder of, of what was then called evangelical theological college, um, and what he was trying to do. But, um, before, before that move and before 1908, which is when Biola is founded on the West coast as sort of this Western franchise, West coast franchise of dispensationalist teaching, um, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have even associated dispensationalism outside of the Midwest. So that's part of the story that I try to track is the geographical spread of this movement. And that's part of the interest is like, it was so small at one point that you could actually identify sort of where, where it, it originated and then how it spread at some, you know, at some point it, it's just impossible to keep doing that because it, it grows so quickly. I think one way it does is like Dwight Moody's revivals, right. which are, you know, millions of people are attending those. It's hard then to track it um individual by individual but um but yeah the, it, it remains a, a largely american phenomenon uh besides those missions uh groups and it also remains um a largely white phenomenon there are some non-white dispensationalists particularly some pentecostal streams that haven't yet um sort of uh, gone critical on it like like others have um but there are very few um you know african-american dispensations i don't want to say there are none because there's always um exceptions but in large part, the sociological profile dispensationalism um, has been white American Christians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I, I thought. And and I, I can't, I have read somewhere, and I'm sorry, I read a lot. I, I'm not sure if it's covered in your book or if I, or if I pick it up somewhere else. But I remember reading that um, during the Scopes trial, that America was highly focused on this idea of evolution versus creation. And uh, a lot of people were, you know, beginning to go, you know, the way of Darwin, I guess you would say, and that some of the church started to sort of shrink back or, you know, come back. And that's where a lot of these institutes were born from. Do you go into that in your book at all? Or I, I, I don't know if you do. It's just something that I had read somewhere. I couldn't remember. I'm sorry. It's a very yeah. small piece. Um, I, I definitely gesture that. I'm, I mean, there, that's certainly not an original insight to me uh, or my book, but um, I think of actually the historian Joe Carpenter, who's written, he, he's a, of a generation ago, but he wrote a, a lot on on this era, the 1920s to the 1940s. And he, he has a phrase, he talks about the way that fundamentalists in particular created parallel institutions mm-hmm. to the ones that they were originally members in, in say 1900 or 1910. But as um, as they identify that a lot of American culture and a lot of the church even is is drifting toward modernism or drifting toward more liberal theology, mm-hmm. they end up leaving and um, and creating parallel institutions. So they don't sort of create entirely new things. They just create another version, another seminary, another denomination uh, that that sticks to their theology. So this is where um, this is where you start getting a distinct fundamentalist uh, subculture that is that is not overlapping much with the mainline or or liberal uh, subculture and this is actually where dispensationalism really thrives in the 1920s and 30s because it's this already well developed um theology that has that that hits all the marks for being theologically uh orthodox or conservative or traditional it has a high view of the bible 
Um, as we mentioned, it, it, it largely affirms sort of the traditional creedal thing, like the Nicene Creed, the Westminster, you know, the Westminster Confession. Most of it, it dispensationalists agree to. Many dispensationalists are coming out of Presbyterian and Congregationalist and Methodist uh, backgrounds, so they're already sort of tied in that way. And then they're also very mission minded, and this is a really important part of the fundamentalist movement. Is that you're, you know, this is one of their big critiques of the mainline was that they were getting too focused on so-called worldly um, concerns and they weren't thinking about saving souls that like, you know, th this was the call of the church. So dispensations were good on all those things. So when, when the fundamentalists start separating from, uh, from the, the liberal Christians and start creating their own churches, their own denominations, their own schools, dispensationalists are right there to help, you know, build those institutions. And, um, the, the, what I try to track there is that it's not just, so dispensationalism is a very vibrant tradition at that point, the sort of rival tradition or the one that really defines the, com the competition within the fundamentalist world are what we call the covenantalists, um, which is the more reformed, um, uh, more traditional Westminster confession view of, uh, you don't have a bunch of dispensations. You basically have, um, uh, covenants that are made between God and humanity. And there's a lot of continuity there where dispensationalists see discontinuity. And so that's, you know, the, the easiest way to describe this is like if Dallas Seminary is the dispensationalist uh, sort of headquarters, um, Westminster Seminary is the covenantalist headquarters. And um, the fascinating thing to me is that the rivalry between those two and all the things that sort of uh, line up on both sides tells us as much about the fun about the the fate of fundamentalism or the development of fundamentalism as anything else does and so often historians will go to sort of the big things about modernist versus you know fundamentalist and stuff like that and that stuff matters but if you really want to understand like why does evangelicalism develop the way it does at least part of the answer needs to be we need to look at the covenantalist versus the dispensationalist theological debates that really dominate evangelical thinking from the 30s to the 90s or something like that um, but those come out of this new context of creating institutions within the fundamentalist world that have to decide or have to sort of um, develop their theological standpoints uh, on things. Well, I, and I, I appreciate your respect towards them. That says a lot about your character. It does, you know, and I, um, because I've seen both sides of this, I've seen some that are just diametrically opposed to dispensationalism. They do call it the American obsession, and but you're right. There are a lot of people within this within that system that did mission work that went around the globe that were spreading the gospel, and I am glad that they are getting back to that at least, you know, at a minimum. Um, so I appreciate your work and thank you for doing that. And uh, I I don't have a whole lot of time left here, and I, I do want to ask you just a couple of questions. So. Where do you fall, you know, in the spectrum? So you were raised uh, in a missionary home that came from your, you know, your father came from Dallas Theological Seminary. I assume they were teaching some dispensational thought, but he was focused on missions, um, which is probably more of a soteriological, you know, venture than it is um, theology. Um, so where do you fall in all of this? Yeah. And uh, well, I, I, I'm not a dispensationalist. I'll say that. I don't ever claim that that term. Um, I've been most affected in recent years by the work of people like N.T. Wright. Um, so, you know, and I'm not the only one. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's quite popular. Yes. But um, but certainly on eschatology, I, I probably land closer to Wright than than certainly dispensations, which is I, I understand the that we are part of the new creation already and that our mandate is to 
sort of further the mission that Jesus started at, at the resurrection. And so that means in particular where I dissent with dispensationalist thought is this idea that the kingdom is sort of is waiting in abeyance until the rapture happens and then the kingdom will start through Israel, all that kind of stuff. I, I don't see that as as what the Bible teaches or, you know, well, that's the first thing. I don't see it what the Bible teaches. I also don't find it to be the most helpful way to particularly do the work I try to do at a at a university campus, which is try to get students who are majoring in engineering or biology or history, very few in history, by the way, but there are a few still uh, doing history yeah. <laughs> um, and and getting getting these Christian students to understand, like, how how are you being called by God to do kingdom work as an engineer, as a biologist? So I've I've drawn and not just uh, right. He's probably the most uh, important person, someone that I, I like. Uh, he's 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 somewhat uh, he, he often has sort of uh, controversial takes on things. But uh, Richard Middleton is another theologian who's been in this space talking about sort of the new creation. Sometimes that's called holistic eschatology or biblical eschatology. It's really tied into when we talked about Tim Mackey. I mean, I, I really like Tim Mackey still, but this idea that that there's a there's a there's a strong biblical theology or, or narrative thrust to how we should understand ourselves in the world. Mm -hmm. Someone else I really like is Leslie Newbegin, who talks about this um, as well. That that the Bible is a sort of universal history, and we're part of uh, we're part of God's redemptive plan uh, yeah. here and now. So that's where I land. I don't know exactly. I mean, I I would call myself in like the precise theological terms. I'm a historic premillennialist um, in terms of, but I have like a covenantalist theology under that um, to to sort of read the rest of the Bible. So that's where I, that's where I land. But I, I do just want to convey like, obviously I have family who are still in the dispensationalist uh, mode and and I respect them and I, I try to learn from them and, and I don't sort of uh, dismiss whatever they say because they have theological differences than me. Um, I am, as we talked about, more critical of when I see people in power or people with influence who are sort of using this theology in a way that I find to be inauthentic to the tradition in some ways, and also very uh, exploitative in commercial or, or other aspects. I really don't like that. I don't think that's dispensationalists alone are the problem there, though. There's a broader um, church problem around celebrity culture and all that kind of stuff. But I definitely yeah. see dispensationalists participating in that, and that's where I get critical. Yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, I you know I have family members that are still within that system, and I love them dearly, and they are um, incredibly passionate, you know, about the the Word of God and about Jesus Christ and His Kingdom, and sharing that gospel. So I don't want to detract from them. Uh, I do agree with you uh, a lot in regard to the system and those in power using it. I agree with you on that. So. Well, uh, normally, normally, uh, whenever I have the whole cast with me, uh, Billy Kimsey likes to ask this one question is one of our final questions. And then I do want to uh, have you tell the audience where we can find uh, all of your books uh, and your website. But so Billy always asks, so when you take your last breath here on earth, where do you go? <laughs> we love to ask easy questions. Yeah. Where do I go? Yeah. When you take your final breath, where do you go? Um, the long pause is because I uh, I have not thought through this. Um, no, that's fine. Deeply. And if you don't want to answer, you don't have to. But you know, some people are like I go to heaven, right? That's what. Yeah, people yeah, yeah. To, But but some people they they've developed their thought process on eschatology or or just yeah. you know on the end of everything. That where do you go? What what happens yeah. when you die? What? Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not silent because I don't think I'm like I, I'm sure 
my soul is eternal and I will be you know, with God. Eternal. Right. I don't know if it's going to, I don't know if it's like the split second I die though. Um, uh, or if there's some type of uh, waiting period or sleeping period, you know, are we, do we sleep until some later moment? Um, I, I guess I'll answer it with a negative, which is I am skeptical of what I grew up thinking, mm-hmm. which is something that is probably much more shaped by American pop culture than it is by anything biblical, which is some type of cloudy existence with everyone who I was ever, you know, with all my family going generations back. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's, I don't want to say that that's never going to be part of whatever heaven is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think about, you know, going back to N.T. Wright or so, I do think about is 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 that version of heaven too in, indebted to Platonic and other philosophical ideas that aren't actually Christian? They are things that are good for movies and, and other things, right. um, but, but aren't biblical. And I wonder how much this is what, so here's a question that I've asked students at upper house that I don't even know the answer to, but we're sitting at, at, in Madison, Wisconsin. I, I ask in the new heavens and new earth or in heaven, um, is there going to be a Madison? Is there going to be a lake? Is there going to be, uh, some remnant of the university of Wisconsin? I mean, it's made a major mark on this land and you get all types of answers to that. And I think. I think I believe there will be some resemblance. If it's the new heavens and new earth, there will be some resemblance to the current earth. But I have no idea if that's, I, I would not bet out anything on that. And um, I'm open to be persuaded, but I guess I expect whatever the eternal state is to be on something that is resembling the earth mm-hmm. and that we will be doing work of some sort. We won't just be sitting around, um, you know, playing harps and floating around. Um, and you think, that you think we'll be allowed uh, to walk on water like Jesus. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That'd be cool. I do think I mean, this is, yeah, this is where I'm really channeling anti right. But I, I think like, uh, I think we'll be called to do things, um, together and all, all for the glory of God. But I have no idea what that actually means. It's hard to, you know, you get into things about time and other things. I don't, I don't know where it goes from there, but, um, I think I've, I've been persuaded that I don't, that I'm not just going to sort of sit in a soulless or a soulful, but bodiless sort of existence. Yeah. Well, that is a great answer. It's an honest answer. So thank you for that. So before I let you go, um, can you tell our audience where we can find your book uh, and also about your website? Yeah. So the dispensationalism book is available on Amazon. Um, it's it's available from Erdman's, the publisher. It's, it's on most uh, book publishing, book, sales websites um and uh the covenant brothers book on on christian zionism is from a very academic press so it's a very expensive book but that's also available on amazon and and elsewhere and then i have a personal website danielghummel.com that is where i just keep track i i post all the things i write i write semi-regularly for christianity today and some other outlets on uh stuff related to christian zionism or related to eschatology so um danielghummel.com is where you'll find my stuff very good well thank you um guys if you go back to the paragraph our blurb uh at the where you selected to listen to this podcast down in that paragraph you will find a link to his website as well as a link to his book the rise and fall of dispensationalism so and i will call you dr hummel you've earned it thank you for doing all that work thank you for being on our podcast and um uh, I know it took us a while <laughs> and I appreciate your patience and and working with us here. It means a lot. 
and uh, I wish you the best. I hope that, um, do you have another book coming soon? Or are you working on anything? I am working on another book. It'll be a while, but I'm working on, uh, uh, it's it's a little hard to describe uh, even, but it's a history of evangelical spirituality and practice oh. that goes back to the Keswick movement in the 19th century. And then goes all the way up to people like Dallas Willard in recent years. So wow, okay. um, it, it it's something I picked up, uh, side research from the dispensationalism book, and I'm really excited to do it. But um, I just signed a contract with Erdman's for that. So it'll be a couple of years till, till that comes out. Wow. Very good. Well, I really do appreciate you being on the show. Thanks so much. And uh, again, guys, go check out his website, uh, danielghummel.com. And uh, also... Pick up the book, Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. I know that uh, a friend of the podcast, Gary DeMar at American Vision, uh, he picked up several copies and put them uh, on sale there. Pro- you could probably get it there too for those who uh, you know, like to support his uh, ministry as well. But uh, awesome book. Great work. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Hey, guys. This is Rick from the Burroughs of Berea. Do you know how much blood, sweat, and tears it takes to make a podcast? None. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't cost a lot. And so if you guys don't mind, if anybody would like to give to help us with these episodes, it would be great. We'll put out even more content. And if you go to our Patreon page, just search for the Burrows of Berea. You'll get extra notes, extra episodes, and it's pretty much free. A dollar gets you a lot. Thanks, guys.